Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> With the pandemic in full swing, people are stocking up on food supplies and staples and retreating into bunkers, hurriedly dug backyard tunnels, and other undisclosed locations. But you might also want to stock up on stories and entertainment, too. If you love the Wicked Library, and why would you be listening if you don't, we'd like to remind you that we rely upon the support of our listeners to keep making the show you love. While our free show does contain ads to help us offset the costs of production, The show is expensive to produce, and without Patreon and website members, we couldn't keep making the show in its current form. Season 10 has over 20 full-sized episodes, custom-written just for us by some really big names in horror, with amazing voice actors telling the tales and custom scores by the amazing Nico Viteze. Plus, we're making several all-new Private Collector episodes, Not only do our supporters get the satisfaction of knowing they're a part of making the show possible, but we give out wicked fun rewards like access to our archives, ad-free shows, and more. Plus, at the $5 a month and above level, you get more content, like our show Wicked Fairy Tales, as told by your librarian. Private collector-level supporters hear our audio drama episodes several months before we share them with the full audience, and of course, all of our content is ad-free for supporters so you don't have to listen to stuff like this. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library or at thewickedlibrary.com. We're working very hard to make the show sustainable, but we do need your help to do that. Hello, and welcome to episode number 1001 of The Wicked Library, our season 10 premiere. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening and welcome you to this new season of Wicked Fun. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and of course, we love hearing from you. The librarian asked me to remind you that our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, is now available and packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show. The book also features beautiful cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda. It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. Today's episode features a dark tale by returning author Christopher Long. Today's storyteller is the very talented Louis Pollard, accompanied by a custom score written by our resident composer, Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Please, if you enjoy the story, find Christopher Long's work and buy it. It keeps him making more. You can learn more about Christopher and find links to his work at his bio page at thewickedlibrary.com. Now, let's get wicked. I'm no idiot. I know how you must see me, Sir Arthur Kane, the plastic magnate, the plastic emperor. 
You probably picture me living out in the countryside, burning stacks of money to keep warm, hunting foxes for fun, slapping the greasy backs of fat politicians to keep the wheels turning in my favour. Well, you'd be wrong. I'm sequestered in the dead centre of town, in my suite at the top of this grand old hotel, hiding in my bed, praying I'm safe, trying to keep my fear hidden, which I can do as long as no one looks me in the eye. I see it when I catch my reflection, twisting beneath my skin, dancing behind my pupils. Fear doesn't suit a face like mine. The only way onto this floor is by private's lift. So, here I lie, in the most elegant panic room you've never seen. Wrapped in expensive sheets, head pressed against a sweat-soaked pillow, hoping that whatever's been digging into my nerves every night at home hasn't followed me here. Certain that I've not heard the lift arrive on my floor, but just as certain that I'm no longer alone. The gathering sense of panic that startled me awake is all too familiar, as is the palpable dread that's slickly coating the back of my throat, the unwelcome weight that's hanging over this broken silence. I could roll over in a bid to send this sinking feeling back to the shadows, only I know it won't work. I've tried it all before, I've prayed, I've wept, I've closed my eyes and pushed my hands over my ears. Nothing will stop me hearing it come for me, searching from room to room beyond my closed bedroom door. The city feels too far from my window. The car horns and sirens have slipped beyond my grasp. I'm stranded in my pyjamas, trying to convince myself that this is nothing but a flashback, a groggy little reunion of previous unexplained midnight trauma. That's when I hear the footsteps. The slow wet, purposeful footsteps. They're the tender shadow of an actual sound slipping in and out of my jittery perception, similar to the gait of a drunk hoping not to wake you, or the creep of a tired child aiming to slide into bed beside you. I can't move as they come closer. I can't even clutch at the sheets. Strangely, the first thought at this proximity isn't precisely blind fear. It's more grounded than that. It's A nervous, flighty, not again, working in vain to add some distance between me and my terror. I whimper as the shadows deepen until they're bordering on boundless. The encroaching rot make my eyes water and a hand reaches out for me from within that cold abyss. Spectral, but undeniably tangible, thin, murky. A tremoring vision, written out in sickly, dripping skin, it looms from the obscure twilight that its very presence here has conjured. I know those wet, nailless fingers all too well, even if I've never seen the face of their owner. I wonder if it's wrapped in the same pallid flesh, nauseating black veins snaking visibly beneath. Unwelcome and unbidden, it wheezes, croaking as it tries to speak through a constricted, sunken throat. This time, it nearly manages a recognisable word before it vanishes, which might have been my name, or might have been father. With its dread work done, the wraith flees, taking its deeper darkness with it. Thick, black theatre curtains being drawn shut and retreating behind their lead actor, 
vast velvet bat-wing shadows worked by a cloaked scaffold of gallows ropes. Alone again, the city charges back into my senses. I can move. I can scream. None of my staff come running to my side tonight. Not even when I flail myself free of the clinging bedsheets and send a glass of water tumbling to the floor with a loud, wet, expensive smash. Where are they all? I mutter. Their absence throws me more than I'd care to admit. I sit up shakily to a chorus of old aches and pains. My hip, my leg, my back. The arthritis that riddles my outer reaches. I have to remind myself to avoid the puddle and shards of glass peppering the thick, dark carpet where I stand. There's no denying it would be reassuring to send some underling flying into the bowels of the hotel with my orders ringing in their ears. I'd send them for coffee, or maybe I'd keep them here so I could shrug off their blustering fuss. Instead, I find myself abandoned and irritatingly frail, shuddering beneath my pyjamas, fighting with my own dressing gown. Snatching up my walking stick before switching on all the lights to check the corners of my bedroom. My inspection over, the lonely silence sets me off at a brisk pace for my study. I turn on every light as I go, calling out for anyone who might be close at hand. Searching for someone to distract me from the uninvited alienation that's making me a stranger in my own private suite. This was supposed to be my safe haven. Now I find myself hobbling from room to room, trying to ignore the sensation that the shadows are closely observing my every move. Perhaps coming here was a mistake. After all, it's unlike me to run away. Very unlike me, if truth be told. So how did I end up here then? Did it begin when I convinced Franklin to go on that damned boat? It seems the obvious choice, except my mind persists in obsessing over some innocuous little chat I had with my head butler about the state of the gardens and, in particular, the state of the gardeners. This was after another of our dogs was found dead. The reigning theory being that the poor things were getting sick after drinking from the sculpted shores of the lake behind my main house, which was strange when you considered no other animals had suffered the same fate. The head gardener, who was far too emotional for my taste, hadn't taken the latest death at all well. He'd been driveling on about some unwanted influence he couldn't drive off the grounds. Then again, he had other issues. Drink, possibly, or drugs. More than once, he'd been found at the shore of the lake, cringing and babbling about a grotesque statue that wasn't there. Maybe the fool's wittering got the better of me. Not that I often ask the staff for advice, you understand, or listen when it's offered. They're not my confidence. After all, they're merely employees, here to help me maintain the standards to which I've become accustomed to over the years. A man has to have his standards, even when his world is falling apart. Especially when his world is falling apart. My life has always been an endless slalom of scathing headlines, high finance deals and court settlements. None of it, though, compares to the hell I'm living through now. The midnight visitations, the constant paranoia. I've grown wary of the media. I've not read a word they've printed about Franklin's disappearance since the day his boat was discovered, all those months ago. Not a soul aboard. Luckily, 
I rarely have time to dwell on my problems. It simply isn't allowed when you're Sir Arthur Kane. People expect you to be strong, decisive, a bold compass in troubled times. It's one of many burdens that being the Lord Almighty of plastic manufacturing, a legend of the business world, an angry, industrious god. However, behind the press clippings and the tailored suits, I've been reluctantly forced to ease into old age. Nowadays, I hide in the shadow of my tyrant image. He has darker hair than I do, and a longer reach. He can take keener strides through the imaginations of my competitors. Meanwhile, in reality, I've become thin and brittle. My, my skin is papery to the touch, as likely to tear as to bruise. Just the walk from behind my bedroom to my study leaves me exhausted enough to collapse behind my desk. I never have expected my last wife, who roller-coasted her nights away in only the most expensive bars and boutiques with fashion designers, photographers and rock stars, to waste her physical affections on me. My aging body simply wouldn't have tolerated it. Like so much in my life, she became set-dressing in my old age. Take the dogs before they got sick. I never once walked them or bothered to learn their names. Not even the prize winners. I've bred horses since 1980, but I've never rode one. I employ a team of gardeners, but I've never stopped to smell the roses. I flinch out of my thoughts as the doors to my study opens abruptly. The approach of determined footsteps reminds me of a time when I would have looked up to see the comforting, familiar face of good old Mrs. Chambers coming towards me. Dogged by time, yet refusing to yield, She'd worked for me since before time wore short trousers. Or at least that's how she liked to put it. Sadly, my trustworthy old friend is no longer with us. Her loss is focused by the unusually strong waft of perfume that catches my attention. New scent, Miss D. Miss Devereaux is still a stranger in many ways. Much to my dissatisfaction, her personal life remains encrypted regardless of my attempts at tactful prying. She's certainly professional, and far younger than her predecessor. She's more honed around her sharp edges, her nails always painted to match her lip gloss. Always in high heels, but never happy to stand her full height. The word her presence elicits is slick. No sir, it's my usual brand. Her voice puts me in mind of the honey people used to mix into their children's medicine. Were you asleep? I hope I didn't wake you. It was a necessary lie. I'm not sure anyone working for Cane Plastics sleeps well at the moment, sir. That's why I gave everyone here the night off. You sent my staff home. The Financial Times once remarked that my ego is able to manipulate the available acoustics in any room, no matter where I am, making every dictation thunder like opera. I didn't disagree with their findings. I thought it was important to let them get some rest. That way, they could serve you better tomorrow, especially if we had another bad tonight. Mm, I suppose I can see the logic in that. As far as my staff are concerned, all of my recent troubles are just an old man struggling to contain his depression. It's easier to let them think that than to tell them the truth. Not that I'm entirely sure what the truth would be. Certainly not that some guttering spark of grief is threatening to consume me. Thank you, sir. Now, can I fetch you anything whilst you're up? 
I was thinking coffee, or perhaps something a little stronger. Try to keep in mind what the doctor said about your blood pressure. I start to protest, but Miss Devereaux presses on. I'm simply pointing out that the last thing you need is anything that'll overstimulate your system. I'll try and find some tea. Her smile settles me. Never faltering, never patronising. Each one a little carbon copy of its previous elder sibling. Perhaps a pot of chamomile, she suggests before leaving me alone again, closing the doors behind her. I can still remember the first time she came into my office at home. She brought the news about Miss C, calling her a poor old thing, adding the little nickname as if it was an afterthought, the way a child might quickly tack on a prompted thank you. She told me gently before placing the day's post in front of me, the begging letters all stripped away by a series of preset human spam filters, the junk mail and death threats, the pleas for an interview. That day, Miss Devereaux left me with the bad news and her perfume catching at the back of my throat. I noticed the post contained an aberration, a small brown grubby envelope that sat conspicuously atop the pile. That damned letter, I whisper. I'd forgotten all about that. Was that how this started? The memory of it sets my nerves even closer to the knife's edge. A scratchy little thought resurfaces. I'd wondered if the letter had come from the kidnappers. You see, there'd been no contact from Franklin since he'd left off to sea, let alone after his boat had been found abandoned. Many people had kept whispering about the potential hostage situations, only no one ever came forward to claim any sort of ransom. Clearly, who'd ever taken my son had wanted to keep hold of him. This was after months of legal paperwork, public scrutiny and long nights spent contemplating the years I'd have to wait before my son could be legally declared dead. Poor little Frankie. The apple who'd fallen so far from the tree. As a child, he'd often been distracted by shiny toys and bad influences. It was a tendency that had gotten worse as he'd grown up. I supposed it can't have helped his development to see journalists across the globe branding his father as a monster with every headline, although that was inevitable. I'm a rich, successful, opinionated man. A drinker and a gambler who's cheated on as many wives in less than discreet ways. Not that any of those foibles are the real reason I'm hated, of course. No, the world despises me for one reason, and one reason only. The plastic. I would never have guessed it would become such a heinous thing. The hellspawn of man-made materials. The destroyer of oceans. The harbinger of death. Recently, there have been numerous investigations into my processing plants. I've been hauled over the coals by unions and commissions, but I've weathered every storm. I faced every trial, paid every fine with a polite smile. That's why I was pressured to travel to one of those so-called plastic islands in the middle of the Pacific. I'd thought tooth and nail to avoid it, having already made my opinions on those natural anomalies very clear. There was no way I was going to spend weeks on end aboard some rusty tub pretending to study some ridiculous left-wing myth. That's why I'd sent Franklin doing my best to dress it up as a chance at redemption for him. I'm certain everyone saw through the ruse, including the boy. However, for whatever reason, he agreed to go, which meant I was able to feel some modicum of pride in my boy before everything went to hell, and those smug environmentalists lost contact with their shabby little boat. 
It was months later when the letter appeared. Just the memory of it causes my stomach to turn itself into an old familiar knot. Except, thinking on it, Miss Devereaux's first day can't have been the day I saw that letter. At least, not the first letter. That's right, there'd been more of them. All written by hand, mailed directly to me, week after week. Perhaps Miss Devereaux only delivered the last one. The memory is too slippery to be certain. Just like every other recollection in my head, the membranes have become too permeable since I stopped sleeping properly. My past is corrupting, bleeding into itself. Behind me, the curtains tremble on a breeze only they can feel at first. Ice-cold air settles around my shoulders like a shroud. For the briefest of seconds, I hear the ocean. It threads into my senses like a weeping oil slick, causing me to lift my head. A whisper of distant, dark waves lapping against the prow of a moving boat. It becomes so persuasive that I can almost feel the floor begin to bob. The hungry shrills of gulls blends with the taxi horns and sirens outside my window. The hairs on the back of my neck stand on ceremony as the smell of salt water creeps into my nose. I can almost feel the spray on my face before I'm driven to my feet, feeling as though I've just escaped the clutches of another nightmare. I need some proper sleep, I moan, running trembling hands across my face, staggering away from the window. I can't keep living like this. I look down and notice I'm not using my walking stick. I'm standing without it, that's not possible. I've not been able to do that in years. Baffled, I take my hands away from my face and inspect my palms. Skin is far smoother than it was only moments ago. Moving gently on my feet, not quite trusting this newfound support, I make my way over to the mirror. There, framed in antique gilding, is a man who has no right to be looking back at me. His white thinning hair replaced by dark, familiar curls. His eyes keen and free from the borders of dark, heavy bags. I watch as an arthritis-free hand raises and touches his cheek. This can't be happening. I mutter in a voice that sounds clearer than it has in years. The impossible man in the mirror mimes along with me. As the sturdy doors open again, I still can't take my eyes off my reflection. Is everything all right, sir? Miss Devereaux asks, placing the tray of tea on a small coffee table beside my armchair. Is everything all right? I parrot back to her. Look at me. She turns and regards me the way someone might size up a new car. You do look a little tired, she observes, stepping a little closer, her perfume soaking my senses. Tired? I haven't looked this good in years. Sir? Really, look at me. My face, my hair, my hands. My younger voice does indeed resonate around us as I hear myself babbling. I'm standing without my stick, for God's sake. After my last operation, the doctor said I would be in a chair by now. Miss Devereaux rests a warm hand on my shoulder. Maybe you should drink your tea and head back to bed, sir. I might see if I can move some appointments around tomorrow to find you some time to rest. She leaves me standing in my study, the surprise all too clear on my face. Rest! I shout after her. I'm 20 years younger than I was this morning. She offers no response beyond closing the door. Unable to believe how she couldn't see the difference, I walk over to the tea, trusting my legs far more now. I pour myself a cup with a steady hand and hoist it to my lips. 
I managed to blow on it without starting to cough. The fragrant wash doesn't exactly calm my nerves, although its familiarity certainly bolsters the confidence in the reality of my situation. To celebrate, I sit in the armchair with an ease that I've been missing for years. I can't help but admire my skin, luxuriate in the lack of aches that are usually coursing around my body. Had I felt like this when I'd woken up tonight? It's hard to be sure now, the fear had blinkered me before driving me out of bed. It makes me wonder exactly when was the first time I lay awake in the night and saw that hand reaching out for me. Surely I should be able to remember that. I set my tea down and try to focus again on what started this. My thoughts return to that letter. The last letter Miss Devereaux brought to me here. No, not here, at home. She brought it to me at home. I only came here recently. I arrived this morning, making this my first night. So why can I remember people buzzing around me here on other nights? For weeks on end, maybe. Calm down, Arthur, I tell myself. I know I woke up here tonight, when that thing visited me again. I spilt my glass of water getting out of bed, and I needed my stick then. Didn't I? I needed it to get here, surely, then I must have woken up older, as ridiculous as that sounds. I could be having a stroke. I mumble. Somewhere behind me a door slams. The sound startles me off my seat, nearly spilling my tea. It came from my bedroom, or at least somewhere between here and my bedroom. I leave my tea and walking stick behind and head to the door that leads to my bedroom. I open it and look back down the corridor. It's in darkness. That's strange. I could have sworn I'd left those lights on. I stand in the soft, prickling silence, my imagination marinating it. Maybe it came from another floor, or maybe it was Miss D on the other side of my study. Or possibly someone is sneaking around down there, turning off the lights to hide their presence. Paparazzi, perhaps, or some poorly paid porter hunting for an exclusive. I move towards my bedroom, switching on the lights, no longer shuffling the stick alongside me for support. Is it possible I didn't need my stick before? Perhaps my leg didn't hurt then. It could have just been muscle memory. Or could I be missing the obvious? Could my spectral visitor somehow be behind this? It did get closer to me tonight, and let's not forget, it might have spoken my name. No, there has to be some rational explanation for this momentary lapse of reason. A man doesn't get younger regardless of the proximity to his grief or ghosts. Then again, he doesn't flee to London to escape the spectral hands, dead dogs or mysterious letters either. As I reach my bedroom, the uncertainty is getting too much. I can't think beyond the questions. My heart is doing somersaults. I open the door slowly. Is someone in here? I ask the emptiness, feeling rather childish. The lights are off in here as well, refusing to come back on when I flick the switch. The bulbs must have blown. Hello? The shadows remain mute. I can remember them turning on me the last time I was here. I can remember that far too well. The breeze that bled through that bottomless darkness felt like it could have blown across some unvisited empty ocean. The lack of light notches up my unease. Something shuffles ahead of me. Who's there? Was that my bedsheets? Is someone hiding in my bed? I try to listen 
closely, barely able to hear past my heartbeat. I'm not in the mood to play games, I tell the gloom. Pressing forward, I catch sight of my reflection in a large mirror sitting on the sideboard. There he is again, the younger man, the impossible youth. I know it's vanity, but he holds my attention. As I watch, something begins to happen to his young face. The sight transfixes me. At first, I think it's an imperfection in the glass, a a ripple or a dent that exposed itself when I moved. Then I see it. It's not the glass at all. No, the skin on my face is beginning to visibly twitch. Not like a tick or a tell, mind you. No, no, no. This is deeper, looser, like water disturbed by the wake of a boat. I lift my clammy fingers and expect to feel nothing out of the ordinary. Only the skin raises from my cheeks to meet my fingers. I flinch them away. I'm not sure that that was skin I touched. It was cold, tacky, man-made, like dank plastic. I can feel it now. I can feel my transformed skin moving. Worse than that, I can feel something beneath it, restlessly stretching, wriggling, a worm close to the surface, a snake in a burrow. Only this snake has limbs, so many limbs, and they're fidgeting beneath my flesh. I stagger back, cringing, hunching over, trying to cover my face, but it's no use. I catch another glimpse of myself in the mirror. My ageing, shifting, mutating self. It's not just my face now, it's all of me, my eyes barely holding in their sockets, my teeth looking loose in the carnivorous, twisting outline of my mouth. I let out a wail that belongs in some poor child's nightmare before everything tightens like a kite skin in a gale. The effect pulses down my body, driving me to my subsiding knees. My fingers land on carpet. They splay and stretch, they tense, nearly bending back on themselves. The sight buckles me with unceasing revulsion. I glance back, my neck turning surely too far. Behind me, my feet appear little more than empty sock puppets. Empty but still moving. I can't feel my mouth or tongue. I can barely hold my contorting body up through this internal earthquake. I crumple down and drive a hand forward. The fingers curling and withering. My arm grey and unruly. I can smell decay. I can see it blistering and reshaping on the molting surface of my now flesh. Terrified, I drag my degrading body across the carpet, my form stretching and recoiling like some hideous skin tide as I try to make it to the door. I try to scream and beg for help. I try to stop myself melting into the darkness, only I can't do it. I can't hold myself together any longer. I fold into myself. I melt into the carpet and drain away into whatever place waits beneath our shadows. Suddenly, in the precarious blink of a dwindling eye, I find myself splayed out on the floor of my study. Breathless, old again. The aches back at home beneath my still skin. I can hardly lift myself before the doors fly open and my secretary rushes in. Sir Arthur! I'm all right. I'm all right. She collects me off the floor like a discarded ragdoll and sets me back up in my armchair. Hot, fragrant tea soaks close to my feet, but I can't smell it. I can only smell her. Sickly sweets, the manufactured waft of flowers that never bloomed. My skin has settled now, but my insides feel 
different. They're tense, unstable, uncomfortable now that they're in a fixed position. When I shift, it's as if they've turned malignant and slippery. They no longer feel natural, they feel manufactured. Are you okay? Miss Devereaux asks, sensing my distress. I'm fine, I answer quietly. Are you sure? That nightmare was so real. It's hard to trace when tonight became another dead end in its spiderweb embrace. I'm in my study, in my pyjamas. I know that much, which means I must have fallen asleep here after getting out of bed. So everything before must have happened. But when did I fall asleep? How did I get here? I I must have just slipped. You need to be more careful, sir, she points out as she cleans up the broken fragments of cup and saucer. Looking down, I catch a glimpse of the skin beneath Miss D's collar. I don't know if it's the light or my eyes, but in the moment it appears almost grey. As grey as rotten meat, as grey as my flesh in that horrendous dream. The sight of it lets a spark of fear loose in me. Miss Devereaux catches my gaze, causing me to swiftly look away. Maybe I should call the doctor, she suggests, pulling at her neckline as she stands. Why did she do that? Was I staring? Was I right? I'll be fine, I tell her quickly. It was just a little fall. Maybe we should still get you to bed, sir. I wave her away. I can get myself there. The concern on her face doesn't sit right now. It might as well be some ill-fitting mask. I can't shake the image of the skin I saw beneath her clothes. So dreadfully dead. Is it still there now? Sir, I can almost smell the decay hidden under her perfume. It must have been the nightmare still nipping at my heels. Perhaps I'll feel more secure in bed. I can leave the lights on, try to relax under the covers, try to get my thoughts in order. I'm going. Just don't call any doctors. I won't be prodded and poked because I had a bad dream. I'm not a child. Very well, sir, but I'll be keeping an eye on you. Yes, yes. Off you go. She reluctantly leaves me be, eyeing me closely before closing the door. This time, I retrieve my stick before attempting to stand. My leg barely holds me after my little spill earlier. So much for that second bloom of youth. I open the side door to my study and see the lights are on this time. Hopefully, that's a good sign. Shuffling slowly towards my bedroom, there's no denying that all of this feels far too familiar. Although my bedroom door is shut this time. Did I leave it like that? I can't remember now. I steady myself before daring to push it open, half expecting to see some deformed version of myself splayed out across the carpet, looking up at me with that contracting, deflating, fracturalizing face. Thankfully, there's nothing of the sort waiting for me. The lights are still on, the bed is empty, there's no mirror on the sideboard. Yet, the victory turns hollow when I see my glass on the bedside table, beside the picture of Franklin. There it sits, in one piece. Not a drop spilled. That helps the doubt begin to creep back in. Unseen waves bob beneath my feet. Steady, I remind myself as I approach the bed and pull the sheets back, just to make sure it's empty. It's entirely plausible that Miss Devereaux replaced the glass for me. Of course, it stands to reason that there would still be some trace of the previous glass of water soaking into the carpet if I'm right. 
Feeling foolish, but desperately needing a little logic to anchor myself, I kneel gingerly and ignore the pain shooting through my leg. I search for as long as my joints allow, trying to forget the image of my unravelling fingers strayed out against this thick, dark carpet. There's no glass down there. Not only that, but the floor feels bone dry. Damn it. Turning to lever myself up using the sheets, I catch sight of a box I stashed under my bed. It's been pushed quite a way back. I have to use my stick to hook it and drag it closer before I can retrieve it with a liver-spotted hand. It's old and dusty, made of a dark metal that's begin to rust in places. I set it on the bed and struggle up beside it. I lean my stick against the bedside table before giving the thing a once-over. It's familiar to my fingers, but that can't be right. My memories are getting tangled. It doesn't help spending every day cooped up in this hotel suite, wishing it was safe to go home. No, wait, I'm doing it again. Why can't I get this straight in my head? This is my first night here. I've got a hand on the lid when the bedroom door opens. I quickly slide under the covers and tuck the box in next to me, out of sight. Miss Devereux hovers in the doorway. How are you feeling? That honey-sweet tone of hers sets me on edge now. Her smile isn't a carbon copy either. It's a forgery. Better for being in bed, I tell her. That's good. Remember, if you need anything, don't hesitate to call. I won't. She leaves. Her scent lingers. Alone again, I fish the box back out from under the covers and set it down on my knee. There's a large stack of letters waiting inside, all in familiar brown envelopes. I take out the first one. It reads, Dear Sir Arthur, I'm so dreadfully sorry to let you down like this. We both know it's rare for me to miss a day's work. Sadly, I'm under doctor's orders this time. He's made it very clear that the pain in my back is a symptom of the tumour his colleagues have found. The specialist he sent me seems to think I stand a good chance of recovery. I know this is a hard time for you and I wish I could be there to help. You put on a brave face and fool most of the people, but you can't fool me. I know you too well. I know how much you loved your boy, even on his very worst days. I'll do my best to get past this silly little illness and return to my post. Yours, Irene Chambers. The letters were from Miss C. I had completely forgotten about that, just like I'd forgotten about her cancer. I take out the next one. Dear Sir Arthur, it's more bad news, I'm afraid. The doctors are saying I'm not responding as hoped, bless them. They actually seemed upset when they told me. The news is still sinking in. I understand that I'm not well, but it's hard to believe that things are as bleak as they say. I just feel tired at the moment. I hope you can forgive me for abandoning you in your time of need. You and Frankie are in my prayers. Yours, Irene Chambers. None of this feels familiar to me. Curiosity drives me onto the next one. I cannot thank you enough for contacting me. Any treatment you're willing to recommend will be good enough for me. Please do put me in touch with your doctors. I'm sure they will work wonders. My head is pounding. I don't remember contacting her about alternative treatments. What would I even know about such things? I'm no bloody doctor, especially when it comes to anything alternative. That's more my son's department. Or it used to be. I move a few down the stack. It means so much to me that you're allowing me to stay in your hotel suite whilst receiving treatment. I met your doctors today. 
They barely spoke one word, but I suppose you're right. It's better to have a stern expert than some polite, chatty quack. The fact that you've vouched for them has certainly put my mind at ease. The first treatment went well, or so they tell me. I'll be perfectly honest, I can't remember it. I've been assured that's quite normal, as are the bad dreams. I moved through the next few letters, racing to fill in all these gaps in my memory. I can't believe she stayed here. Probably slept in this very bed. She talks about this mystery treatment I recommend, thanking me over and over for offering reassurances that I can't recall giving. Slowly, though, the tone begins to shift. Her cheery optimism slides into confusion. She can't remember how long she's been here or when she last wrote to me. She also talks about the pool out on the terrace a lot. One letter begins. I woke up beside the pool again this morning. I was half awake, but I'm sure I saw something out on the water. It was sinking under the surface, too large for a bird, too stable, too narrow. Whatever it was, the water looked grey in the morning sun after it was gone. I know how this sounds, but I know what I saw. I never saw it resurface either, not even when your doctors came to collect me. The letters continue in that way. She becomes convinced that there's something in the pool. She returns to it every night, watching it rise to the surface. She says it gathers land around it. A shore of sort, maybe of discarded plastic. Old wrappers and bottles, nets, packaging, and a little dead bodies. Didn't my head gardener say he'd seen something like that across our lake? Maybe she'd been talking to him, the poor old thing. As the letters go on, this oddity features more and more prominently. She visits it in her dreams, or so she believes. She steps ashore to see dead, feathered bodies woven into a grubby plastic quagmire, stepping over wet, toxic slurry puddles, avoiding the bones protruding from the algae and rotting, wrapping. She talks about flocks of birds circling this totem when it rises, drawn to the fetid flesh hanging from it and blood pooling at its base. They swarm around it like flies gathering at some great carcass. However, for all of Mrs. C's talk of dreams and her weakening strength at the hand of the silent doctors, what I am troubled by most is what's absent from this box. My replies. More and more she references the letters she's received from me, letters I have no memory of sending. Surely they can't have come from me. Which begs the question, who was writing to her in my name? In the end, it's too painful reaching each slow missive from her demise. I skip to the last letter the box has to offer. Dear Sir Arthur, I can hear her calling out for someone. Maybe it's me, I I can't be sure. She has come into my room more than once, but I never see her face. I can see her hands and hear her voice. She has such a fragile voice. I wonder, do you know who she is? I've tried following her, but the doctors always take me back to bed. The last time I got out of my room, I saw a man talking to them in the hall. Was that you? Who looked like you, only younger. (laughs) For the silliest of moments, I thought I was looking at your son. The lights weren't all on. His skin looked almost grey from where I was standing. There was no mistaking that laugh, though. They've locked my door and told me to get some sleep. Tomorrow, I'll have my final treatment, even though I'm not feeling any better. If anything, I'm weaker. I can barely hold myself together. 
My memories are getting muddled. I have no idea if it's day or night outside these walls. Please, if you can, let me know that I'm wrong to be scared. Tell me that this will be okay. Yours, Irene Chambers. I set the letter down. A tear slowly tumbles off my cheek and lands on the paper, blurring the letters of her name. How could I ever have forgotten this? She looked to me for help. Even worse, she's probably died thinking I was behind all of this, never knowing she was someone else's prisoner, whoever was pretending to be me. Before I left home, my butler had worried that the water on our estate had been laced with something that was poisonous to dogs but had other effects on humans. I'd ignored his fretting at the time, but it makes sense now. Maybe we were all dosed by some dangerous outsider. It would explain why our gardener and Mrs. C had been seeing the same things. Maybe they were both victims of some vicious scheme that was doubtlessly aimed at me, getting me here, alone. Poor old Mrs. C, weak and ill, a mouse caught up in a sprung trap being made to see those hideous hallucinations night after night. Unsure of what was real, her dosed imagination returning her to those plastic shores that were some terrible reflection of the islands that I'd sent Franklin off to see. She was never happy with me for asking him to go in my place. She lay here in this bed thinking I was torturing her, thinking that I'd paid those doctors to torment her. She was haunted in this bed, just like me, except she was certain her phantom was a woman. I can hear her calling out for someone. My thoughts strayed to Miss Devereaux. The woman who brought me this letter, the woman who looks dead beneath her clothes and wears too much perfume, as if she was trying to mask some terrible smell. What if she'd been pulling the strings this whole time? My memories aren't clear enough to be sure, but it certainly seems plausible. She could have been answering my letters. She could have been dosing my drinks, just like my tea and water tonight. After all, I drank the water before I awoke to find that thing at the foot of my bed again. I drank the tea before I'd had the terrible vision of myself melting into the carpet of this very room. Then there's the fact she sent everyone home tonight. My God, why didn't I see this before? What is she planning? Maybe that's why Miss C hid the letters here. She wanted to leave me proof. Oh, please let that be true. If it is, then I need to honour my friend's sacrifice. I need to catch Miss Devereaux in the act. If I can slip out of here with proof, then maybe we can finally put all of this to bed. I'll be able to grieve and get on with my life. I'll be able to sleep again. I lie still, trying to think straight. It has to be worth a try. The lift is only at the end of the hall. I should be able to get there before she notices. I just need to be quiet. Quiet and quick. I ease myself out of bed. Pull on a shirt and some trousers and snatch up my stick. I creep to the door, clinging to the box of Mrs. C's letters. There's no sign of Miss Devereaux. Good. She must have retreated to her own room, probably smugly assuming that I'd drunk the next glass of water and was lost to the next wave of my delusions. 
anger stirring my steps. I move as quickly as I dare, leaving the lights off this time, cringing at every creaking floorboard, knowing she heard me moving before. I can't give her any reason to suspect things aren't going to plan. The study is in darkness. I move through it quietly and open one of the double doors. The main landing is empty. I can see the lift doors from here. Also, I can smell something. A smell that I know far too well. The decay which accompanies my spectre every night. I freeze, waiting for the shadows to stretch, waiting to see that hand reaching out for me, cursing my system for weakening to her drugs again. Only nothing happens. Which begs the question, why is it so much stronger out here? My feet begin to feel unsteady. I can almost hear those waves again if I listen closely. Not now, I tell myself. I can't afford to get lost into her nightmares. Wait. Her nightmares. Maybe that smell is coming from Miss Devereaux. She could be wearing makeup, dressing to terrify the people she's been dosing like it's some twisted little game she's been playing with us. The smell could be a part of the act, along with the grey skin paint. That would explain why she's always wearing so much perfume. Maybe she's having to mask it until she can wash it off. It would also explain why she quickly pulled up at her collar to stop me seeing some stray makeup she'd missed. Curiosity leads me to outside her room. The smell is definitely stronger here. I know I should run. I know I should flee. Only there could be more proof behind this door. Surely I have to take the risk. Anything to end this madness. Cold, uneasy, unready, I take hold of the handle. I turn it and open the door as quietly as I can, just enough to be able to gain a quick glimpse. Inside, light cuts the gloom. The curtains aren't closed properly. A shaft of light is illuminating something that looks like gristle on the floor. At first, I think it's an abandoned meal. A half-finished steak, perhaps. Then I see it's larger. In fact, it's nearly covering the entire floor. I choke back a gasp as I notice it's laying over the furniture in places like some dead, deflated skin parachute. It's softly withering, slumbering, dreaming the grey dreams of the shapeless. I can't quite make out the edges of it in the dark. It's more of a mass, undone, addressed. I silently pray for this to be another delusion when, in amongst its slimy folds, I spot something. A frail skeletal form. Mrs. C. Drained, spent, but not lifeless. Her pale eyes are open. Her mouth is moving slowly, limply. A fish out of water, gasping for air. Her head raises towards me. A thin little hand reaches for me. More bones than skin. Half digested. I can't help but scream. The mass stirs at the sound, it gathers itself up, it begins to wrap itself around her, her limp little frame folds easily into place, the prey of some endless rotting snake. My legs give out, I fall as it rises, I'm gibbering, shaking, I drop the box as I raise my hands to cover my face, 
the thing begins to make a sound like a drowning bagpipes. A sound that becomes a voice as that endless form begins to look human. Tall, thin, well-honed human. Unable to cope, my terror greedily shuts down my thoughts. The darkness claims me. I'm not sure how long I'm lost to the dread and emptiness before the voices begin to reach me. We were so close this time. Is that Miss Devereaux? Surely, it's too soon to tell. I don't know that voice. I think it's a man. Maybe it's an accomplice. No, your initial fears were right. It is her. This one was far too unstable. What does she mean by this one? Motion stirs me from the depths. The darkness rises like a curtain. I'm groggy, sitting upright, bound tightly to the frame of a wheelchair that's being pushed through my suite towards the pool. Behind me, I can hear the rattle of metal and plastic. I try to speak, but my mouth feels like cotton wool. My arms are tied in place. I can barely hold my head up as they wheel me out into the rain. We just need a little more time, the man pleads. For a terrible moment, I assume they're going to push me into the pool. Mercifully, they stop at the water's edge. It's not worth the effort, Miss Devereaux tells him. We're better off starting again. Neither of them bothers to speak to me. I can't feel my weak husk of a body. I can only watch through the rain as something begins to happen to the water. It turns grey. Hiding the patterned tiles, a bottle bobs up to the surface. A trampled can. Plastic wrapping and torn sheets of tarpaulin. Then come the corpses sewn amongst them. The toxic stench of chemicals and the wet flesh burns my eyes. Little dead rotting bodies. Birds and fish. Limp, broken turtles with cracked shells, small sharks and dried, buckled octopi. They're all caught in some hideous mass of plastic that doesn't so much rise from the water as manifest. Calling the birds to circle overhead, they land at my bound feet and feed on whatever they can wrestle free from the salt water and rot. A couple eye my toes. At the centre of this festering knot of skin and plastic looms the totem that plagued Mrs. C. She was right. It looks like it's made from bone, sea-washed and blood-stained. Its presence seems to hold the horrendous shore together, impossible and sickening, but too close to be mistaken for a mirage. A figure steps out from behind it. My son, cleaner and younger than before, standing upright and proud, he doesn't even look at me. So, he says, another failure. He is a step in the right direction, the man behind me says. He's unravelled more than once. That's because the connection's too strong. Your father's will keeps overpowering every subject we make. His memories are too stubborn to stop bleeding through. The next one will be better. I hope so. The indecisive apathy has gone from Franklin. We're wasting our time. Worse than that, we're wasting his time. No one ever said immortality was going to be easy, Miss Devereaux says from over my shoulder. She's right, her colleague agrees. And she should know. Whatever you found out there is still learning to play nicely with its creator. Creator? That brings a bleak smile to Franklin's lips. 
I wouldn't let my friends hear you say that. Come on, Miss Devereux says, pushing me forward. Let's get this over with. I'm pushed onto the decaying, revolting shore. The wheels of my chair catch on little dead corpses and shredded dregs. Things are flourishing here that should never be. Plastic and flesh abominations. Twisted blind as alien as deep sea life. Twitching in the poisonous slurry. I can see it all now. They grew the woman pushing my chair around Mrs. C's dying body corpse. What was it she said in her letter? I can hear her calling out for someone. Maybe it's me. I can't be sure. They used her as a guinea pig, dressing it up as a treatment as they learnt how to manipulate whatever Franklin had found in the ocean. Whatever had emptied out that entire boat of scientists. Whatever he was now calling his friends. When we reach the foot of the totem, I'm tipped onto the ground. The doctor takes my hand and presses it against cold, slimy bone. I'm too weak to fight. Too weak to beg for mercy. I can barely raise my head as they step back. The ground begins to shift. I watch in horror as the plastic reaches out to claim me. It digs into my skin. It wraps around my uncomfortable organs and pulls me close. Pulls me apart. Claiming everything that started out here. I am unspooled. Undone. Around us grey faces lurk in the gloom. The city rain washes toxins off their skin. They're not like me. But they know what I am. What I was. They know Franklin. Can't the others see them? They're speaking a name. Chanting it over and over. The rhythm of it fills my mind as whatever I was and whatever I am are separated and spilled out over the ground. My body has left little more than a deep heap of matter, man-made waste and fading thoughts surrounding the limp body of a pale old man. Franklin and his helpers rushed to retrieve the older, weaker Arthur Kane. The wheelchair they tied me to is rigged with breathing apparatus, tubes and drips waiting to be inserted. He's quickly hooked up but stays slumped in the chair. You'd almost think he was dead if he didn't look into those eyes. Those eyes that are glaring at whatever's left of me as it drains into the pollution at his feet. Another failure, he croaks. I know that voice. It was my voice once. His teeth are yellow. His gums are withdrawn and bloody. His hair is little more than cobweb wisps covering a ruined scalp. Sorry, Dad, Franklin says, kneeling beside him. We'll get there, but you just need to stop forcing things. You can't just wish yourself young again. Says who? The old husk in the wheelchair smiles. I've got God on my side. With that, the party heads back into my hotel suite, discussing plans for their next attempt at immortality. Alone and dwindling, I can hear your city bark at the dying light, loud alien, electric. My knowledge of it is fading out without my host. I know your words, but I'm losing their meaning. At least, I can feel the rain. That means I'm still here. I refuse to die like this. I won't be left. I won't be thrown away. Fear focuses my intentions. I grow a leg to stand on, another to walk. 
I build myself a torso, arms and a face from whatever I can find. I straighten up when my spine is gathered together. I breathe when I've woven lungs. The body I construct is a rushed ruin, a landfill reflection of the man I nearly was. As the shore begins to sink, I stagger for the patio, leaving traces of myself behind until my black veins can tie this ragged flesh together. I'm aiming for the man who held me together. The man who killed a woman I'll remember as my friend. The man who could still anchor me clear from the reach of the cruel dark sea. That thing they found in the water is not what they think. That's not his son who came back and his deal offers no sort of immortality they should ever want. I've seen the mind that's grown beneath toxic waves, young, violent, and hungry. A weaver of world's end. I won't be left to rot in its slimy embrace. I wave the hungry birds away as I scramble inside. My tread soaks grim footprints into the carpets. Stumbling through corridors, I hear heart monitors. I creep in through an open bedroom to the sound of machines breathing for crooked lungs. I reach out a hand that's constructed from fetid nightmares and try to speak with a tongue that leaks chemical death. Only my words are little more than bones and wrappers now. I barely manage my name. In the dark, in my bed, a stranger with my face screams. I wonder, how do you see me now?